Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the Final Week Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins. Welcome to the latest interview from the greatest season that was World Cup 99 series. At the time, this was my favourite of the lot to record with Zimbabwe's star wicketkeeper batter from their brilliant campaign, Andy Flower. As we now know, this tournament proved to be the high point of their best era, which makes this bittersweet to an extent. The conversation with Andy, along with Shannon Gill and myself, recorded during the 2019 World Cup, deals with that while looking back before 99 and also to 2003, where our guest's Zimbabwean career came to an abrupt end alongside Henry Alonga. But it's mostly a celebration of what this team did across a thrilling month in England, storming into the Super Six as a result of two sensational wins in the group stage. This app, as always, is brought to you in partnership with Seabus Super, celebrating their 40th birthday in 2024. As a fund, Seabus has changed across these four decades to operate in a complex economy with increasing regulation and expanding member needs. As they approach their milestone year, Seabus will celebrate and reflect on their long and rich history and their achievements, but the fund's culture asks it to look forward on behalf of their members. Seabus and its nationwide workforce will continue to pursue the vision of of creating value for members and to provide them with confidence, financial security and dignity in retirement. Good people doing good things. Get your super sorted out at cbasuper.com.au. Tell them we sent you. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Okay, back to 99 we go with Andy Flower. Very nice. Very nice. 
I'm Adam Collins. I'm Dan Bredig. I'm Shannon Gill. And this is the greatest season that was presents World Cup 99. By 1999, Zimbabwe had experienced some fleeting success at World Cups. They'd beaten Australia in 1983, and Edo Brandis destroyed England in 1992. The era that followed those landmark wins, however, is a beacon for Zimbabwe cricket. Through the 90s, they gained test status and steadily built a competitive side. Heath Street, the Flower Brothers and Alistair Campbell were just a few of the players who drove this generation. 1999 World Cup became Zimbabwe's global coming out party as a team to be reckoned with. They took big scalps and they got to the business end of the tournament. This may well have been Zimbabwe cricket at its greatest. Andy Flower today may be better known as the coach who took English cricket to number one in the world. But in 99, he was the undisputed champion of this generation. He joins us to talk about the rise of Zimbabwe cricket, who was Neil Johnson, how the team peaked in 99, and then how things went so terribly wrong in the country afterwards. This is the greatest season that was presents World Cup 99. Adam Collins, Shannon Gill and Dan Bredig. And we're thrilled to have with us today uh, Zimbabwean champion Andy Flower, who was such an integral member of the golden generation of Zimbabwean cricket. We're sitting here in Surrey, in Guildford, watching a county championship game, and he's been so kind to share his thoughts of that famous campaign 20 years ago. Welcome, Andy. Thanks a lot, guys. To begin, let's go back seven years before 99 to the 1992 World Cup, which is where you made your debut, and you remain to this day the only man to make 100 on debut in the World Cup in a one-day international. Uh, that was against Sri Lanka. Your recollections of the start of your career? Yeah, well... I mean, I've got great memories of that. That was my first major tour uh, away, and for that first tour to be in a World Cup and at two amazing, in two amazing countries, New Zealand and uh, Australia, uh, I just feel I feel incredibly lucky. Um, feel very lucky to have played professional sport and travelled the world doing so, uh, and then to do it with a bunch of really good mates and really in- an interesting bunch of people at that time of Zimbabwean cricket, not professional cricketers, but a, a lot of guys in professions outside of cricket going and competing against the best players in the world out in Australia and New Zealand. It was, uh, I've got wonderful memories of the people that I was involved with and then the tournament itself. Uh, that innings uh, against Sri Lanka in New Plymouth, well, I, I thought I thought we had the game sewn up, you know, scores of 300 <laughs> in those days. Rare those days. They were so rare. And there it is. There's the 100 for Andy Flower. Well deserved too. He really has set up this big Zimbabwe total, a marvellous innings from him. And I, I thought, we've got to win this. What a way to start the 92 World Cup with a win. And, uh, but what I'd forgotten was, and, um, and under- underestimated, was firstly the, the size of the ground. New Plymouth is really small. And the, uh, the attacking nature of the Sri Lankan batsmen. And... Um, and we ended up losing, and uh, uh, losing after scoring what we thought was a, a must-win total. One thing that everyone asks about that '92 World Cup before we go into '99 was the defeat of England, the Edo Brandis match. Can you just tell us a little bit about that game? Yeah, well, that game was in Albury. It was a sort mm. of uh, towards the end of the the round games, of the World Cup, the qualifying rounds. England, I think, were already through to the yeah. semis. And they, they rocked up very confident. They'd been playing good cricket. We'd played competitive cricket without, um, w- w- without lighting up the, the international stage. 
uh, and um, and England was obviously a, a scope that we would we'd put at the top of our list of priorities mm. if we had one. <laughs> Um, with the old colonial history of Rhodesia and Zimbabwe. Of course. And so, to firstly, we we didn't bat particularly well, a really low total, I think about 135 or something. Yeah, yeah. And almost had no chance of defending that. Most people would, uh, wouldn't have given us a chance. But Edo Brandis, who's got an amazing record against England, um, he bowled beautifully. He's a big, strong uh, outswinger. Um, and playing against one of his best friends from from school, uh, uh, Graham Hick, mm. and he he knocked off their top order. They they obviously didn't respond really at all well to the pressure that we put them under, um, and ended up pipping them at the post for what was a really uh, meaningful and famous victory for us. Quite a lot happens after that. So that's. Uh, the third World Cup that Zimbabwe play in, of course, in 83, famously knocking off Australia in Nottingham. Uh, in 1997, you didn't win a game. In 1992, um, you, of course, uh, beat England, but don't go any further. And, and then you get test status shortly thereafter. And, and thus begins that slow build up the world rankings and slowly winning important games like your first test victory in 95, which you captained, of course, against Pakistan. Um, players like your brother, um, and Henry Alonga to boot in that game as well in test cricket, and I should add, who will come to him later. But you start building this core of players, which spans either side of the 96 World Cup, which doesn't go particularly well. But can you talk a little bit about that, the idea of once you've got test status developing by having a group that played together for a long time? Well, that's one of the bonuses of uh, being... of, of playing in uh, in an international team from a very small country is your um, your lack of options present you with the opportunity of building up your number of caps and the amount of experience um, that you have uh, within that dressing room and that's definitely what happened with us um, we had so you know we had obviously a number of talented sports people um, and I think from from such a small country and a small pool of sportsmen, it's amazing what Zimbabwe can actually deliver. But we had quite a lot of experience by the time we got around to the 99 World Cup. Guys had played a lot of one-day international cricket, especially in those early days of Zimbabwe cricket. We played um, more uh, white ball cricket than we did red. Um, um, and uh, I think uh, we were quite confident in in the white ball game. Uh, so when we turned up in 99 uh, in England, even though English conditions probably wouldn't be our preference, we were more used to subcontinent conditions, if anything. We were playing some uh, really good cricket. We'd also had the addition, um, and this was really important, the addition of Neil Johnson and Murray Goodwin mm. to our, our playing stocks over the, uh, over the preceding few years. And th they were two really powerful cricketers, Johnson as an all-rounder, um, and could and could open the batting in white ball cricket, uh, and Murray Goodwin is a very skillful, combative um, uh, right-hander in the middle order. There are a few other other nice cricketers dotted around our side. Um, my brother and I, we had Heath Streak, who was a world-class performer, performed brilliantly in that '99 World Cup. Paul Strang, the leg spinner. Guy Whittle uh, and his cousin Andy Whittle, both excellent, ex excellent cricketers. If you can just explain to us the backstory of Neil Johnson before, we're going to talk about his performances, like an incredible uh, performance when, when he actually got to 99, but he'd played for South Africa A and he came to playing for Zimbabwe uh, later than you might have expected. Yes, uh, he was born in Zimbabwe, 
but when, but basically grew up. I think most of his formative years were in South Africa, and he'd be, he'd been playing some successful provincial cricket in South Africa, and he'd be, he'd all, I think he'd always eyed up the opportunity of playing for Zimbabwe, right? Mm. And that that was fast tracking his um, international exposure. Basically, he could he could have played for South Africa if he'd persevered. I think. Uh, but it might have taken him quite a lot longer, and it was not guaranteed. As soon as he was available for Zimbabwe, he was in. Um, so he saw that, I think, partly as a way to play international cricket, but also to market himself internationally. You know, he ended up getting a, a good couple of county contracts after playing for Zimbabwe. And he was he was uh, an important addition uh, to our stocks because guys like him and Murray Goodwin gave us added confidence. Um, and they also brought experiences, Neil's from South Africa, Murray's from his formative years in Sheffield Shield cricket. And so brought a, a slightly more international feel to our 11. Going into it, the, the first game is, is actually a great example of Neil Johnson's effect on the team. You play Kenya in the first game. You're going to have to remind me about the Kenya. <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm happy to tell so, you. you say, so Johnson <laughs> takes four wickets and then makes 59 and, and pretty much wins the game for you, which got you off on, 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 you know, I mean, you'd beat Kenya before in the previous World Cup and you're expected to comfortably account for them. But still, first game of a campaign like this, it's uh, important that you have uh, him stand up and he did exactly that. Well, we'd played Kenya a few times over the years and we'd ha- we had a really good record against them. Uh, we had a little blip in, 90, in the 96 World Cup yep. where they were just about to beat us, actually, and it rained. Mm. Um, we played them in the replay and beat them. But other than that, we had a really excellent record against them. And, and Neil was a really powerful, tall left-hander, for those of you that can't remember. Uh, opened the batting and hit the ball hard. Could pull the quicks and drove on the up. The sort of player you want up front in white ball cricket. Scott, that's six. That's a big one. That's up into the first tier. Oh, what a hit. What a chase by Zimbabwe after 22. It's 122 for one. And then he bowled fairly heavy outswingers, um, not at any huge pace, but he got bounce. And so he was, you know, a really useful cricketer to have balanced our side like any all-rounder of that type does. Even though he was a reluctant, lazy bowler, didn't like bowling, but we forced him to because it was good for the team. You didn't just force him to bowl, you forced him to take the new ball, as well as, well, I know you weren't the skipper, but uh, Alistair had him opening the batting and opening the bowling. It's not often you see that in international cricket. You might see it in junior cricket, but it's as though he was, you know, righto, mate, you, you, you're, you're making the runs and taking the wickets. Yeah, you might see that lower down, you're right. Um, but he was good enough to do that I really I don't think he actually made the most of his talent because of his dislike of bowling mm. um, I think he was he was quite worried about its effect on his body had he had injury problems yeah, prior he had a or few injury problems I think he had a knee problem actually uh, in his defense but what a World Cup to play Roy of the Rovers sort of stuff opening the opening the batting and the bowling and uh, you know we're going to come to that South Africa game where he gets a a wicket with his first ball in um, to set us on our We way. definitely are. We're going to go into enormous detail about this African game once we get down towards the end of your group stage. Just before we go any further, though, there's one bilateral series which stands out for me, and I'm sure it does for you as well, when England come to town uh, and you whitewash them in a, in a limited over series in 1996. Six. How important was it having them to your joint and thrashing them, and also a test match which was level on runs at the end of the fifth day as well, which is um, a different format of the game, but still, that you were coming to England uh, and, and you, you knew that you had their measure, even though it didn't play out that way in the World Cup. But how influential was that 
Well, those sorts of wins were really important for our confidence. Uh, I, I mentioned the colonial link uh, yeah. earlier. So if, if ever we wanted to beat anyone, it wasn't so much our neighbours, South Africa, it was more England. Right. And, and I think actually in my experience as England coach, we were a side that people always wanted to turn over. So um, f- for Zimbabwe, it was no different. That, that one-day international win, uh, series win, and, and whitewash in '96 was really important for our confidence. Uh, but I would say that we had a much more experienced white ball side than they did in those days. Mm. Um, they were still picking fairly conservatively, you know, that uh, I think they had Atherton opening the batting for them, Hussein, etc. So it was that era of white ball cricket. Um, we had Brandis bowling brilliantly, um, uh, and, uh, and we all saw the chicken farmer uh, headlines of that time. Um, and, then we, and then we played the test matches, um, and obviously we had some, some real confidence uh, in those test matches, and we had that, that it wasn't a tied test, but it was like a tied test. Yeah, in, drew in on runs, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Was the team geared for one-day cricket, do you think? Or it was just it just happened that those with the skills of the guys at that stage, or was there was there a specific focus that one day cricket might be the place where we can make a mark? No, I don't think it was the uh, the case for our side. I think it's just that the short the shorter the game, the more likely you are to compete. Mm. Um, and so we 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 had we had more wins, more success in white ball cricket than we did over five days. You know, over five days on good pitches. Uh, the better side is going to come out on top most often. Shorten the game a little, and that might not be the case. So, um, uh, and, and then we, and then because most nations had invited us to play white ball cricket rather than Test cricket, we had uh, we had more experience in that form of the game. Let's move from Taunton up the motorway to Leicestershire for your second game, which really is one of the most crazy finishes in all one day cricket. Certainly in that World Cup, it was the first major upset of the World Cup. So to put it into context, Sachin Tendulkar wasn't playing that day. His father had died and he'd flown back to Mumbai. So there was a minute of, minute silence before the start of the game. Zimbabwe bat first. You make 68 not out out of a total of 252 for nine. Your brother makes 45. And then in reply, India for all money are chasing it down despite early wickets and Heath Street doing really well. Um, at one stage... Uh, the score was 6 for 219, then 7 for 246 with plenty of overs on the clock. Henry Alonga. Seven runs to get. Seven runs to get. Henry Alonga's previous over had gone for 16. Three overs he'd bowled and he gets called back in to bowl the 45th over. And you go, what, what are you thinking? What, what, what's going through your <laughs> mind when Henry, who's such an expensive bowler, we know how potent he is, but at that stage he didn't play the first game. He didn't play against Kenya. He's bowled three overs, gone around the park a little bit, and suddenly he's bowling when you've got seven runs to play with. Yeah, I mean, it, that was a fantastic game to play. You know, it was. Uh, it, it probably wasn't great to watch until that climax because it was fairly low scoring. Um, I don't think there were many boundaries hit. Certainly in my innings of sixty or whatever, I, I think I hit two boundaries in it. Very ninety nine. Um, <laughs> so I, I think any any time you play India. There's a good atmosphere because of the people in the crowd. But it, it became a, a great game just uh, right at the end of it. Henry Alonga hadn't played much for us in one-day cricket because he had genuine pace. He was a genuinely quick bowler, yeah. but it went all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> We're looking through his stats we, from the World Cup. We, we realise that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, uh, but one thing he could do was reverse swing the ball. And we got towards the end of that game. Uh, I'm pretty sure we were only playing with one white ball at that stage. Right. Um, 
uh, of international cricket. And we knew that the ball could reverse. And he, he was a guy that could do that at high pace. He was a 90-mile-an-hour bowler. Uh, Alistair Campbell was the captain. And Alistair was a brilliant captain, I thought, um, in, in a number of ways. Firstly, he, he always backed his players. And he, and he, he spoke, and gave, uh, spoke in a way that made people feel confident. And secondly, he was always up for a gamble. Um, and in this instance, his gamble was Henry Alonga, and it came off. And he gambled on him because he had pace. He was one guy that could take wickets uh, with reverse swing, um, and we only had a few runs to play with. You did. It's worth actually going through it. Gilly, why don't you take us through that ridiculous last over? First of all, so it was it was slightly rain-shortened, so I think it was a 46-over match. So the other question I was going to ask, was the reason he was the gamble because you'd run out of spare overs for other other players i i wonder whether he was the only option to bowl that pe- <laughs> what was going to be the penultimate over well i think he was i think he was the best option at the time but i think i think grant flower bowled really well in that game he might have only got one or two wickets but i think he only went for 33 or 34 runs in his 10 uh, it was a, it was turning slowly and he was quite effective uh, i think paul strang still had some overs yep uh, but Heath Streak would have been bowled out. Mm. So I don't think he was the only option, but he was the best option, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. As it was proven. So two taken from the first ball of Henry's over, and then we see three wickets in five balls. Yeah, all hell breaks loose. So he takes three wickets in, in five balls, which includes bowling Singh. Well, knocks over Singh, knocks over Srinath, then leg before Prasad. And, it, and there's a couple of runs scored in between there as well. So there's three wickets in five balls and, and you bowl them out for 249 to win the game by three runs from the penultimate ball of the penultimate over. And that's the end of Robin Singh. Well, this game still seesawing. Well, Alistair, Alistair Campbell brought on Henry Alonga. Bit of a gamble. His first two overs went for 11. Bowled a few wides and no balls. That's it, Henry Alonga's taking his second wicket in the over. Srinath, clean bowled. He's bouncing it, he's out. Peter Willis decided that that's LBW. And a remarkable win by Zimbabwe. Henry Alonga has cleaned up the tail. And Zimbabwe win by three runs. Absolutely astonishing cricket. I mean the scenes you're, you decide when you run into the middle of the pitch I mean it's just the where does that I mean at that point on the Zimbabwean journey considering you thought you were gone 10 minutes earlier it must have been such a feeling oh amazing feelings and you know those are the sorts of highs and adrenaline rushes um, which is why we play the game why we enjoy the game so much people will feel it when they're playing club cricket or game of squash or but when you're playing with a team you've worked your asses off to prepare yourselves for the series and as you say, the game game's not so much fluctuated. They always seemed in control of that chase. Um, but they left themselves just a little bit more to do and we had a reverse swinging ball and a 90-mile-an-hour bowler. He also had this... He, he, he wasn't a big guy. He was just a very athletic guy. So he slung it a little, like all good reverse swingers do, from a fairly low tra- trajectory. So he was always... If it was a, a reasonable length ball, he was always hitting the stumps, that sort of height. Mm. And that's exactly what he did there. Henry came back at the end and got three wickets in the last over. Great game of cricket. The thing is, you brought Henry back. Now, what inspired you to give Henry Alunga that last decisive over? 
Well, I don't know. Sometimes in cricket, you know, they just say uh, there's no cricketing decision behind it. It's just the gut feeling. Well, I mean, it's probably a good time to talk about Henry Alonga in a bigger sense because right now in Australia, he's doing other things. Now, my question to you is that did he ever sing in the change rooms? Well, not so much the changing rooms, but in those early days, as you can imagine, with a bunch of Zimbabweans, it was a fairly a sort of lively atmosphere after hours. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we used to do these ridiculous fines meetings um, where alcohol was involved, but Henry was a teetotaler. So we had to find him somewhere, and listening to him sing was the way we did it. So it, it was a lot. Uh, it, it was a lot more pleasant for him and for everyone that he was fined that way. We loved listening to Henry. Uh, you know, he he sang at various functions um, in Zimbabwe when we were attending as a as a side. Brought out an album. Um, he brought out an album. Yeah, while he was still playing for Zimbabwe. Huh. Um, uh, he he wrote this beautiful song about Zimbabwe. Um, which we were all very fond of. This land, our land, is our Zimbabwe, a land of peace for you and me, once born in pain and segregation, but now we live in harmony. He probably brought a, a, a level of uh, thought and diversity to the side, which we really needed. Well, what was his background? I mean, if he's a, had the artistic streak through him, I mean, where, where did that, do you know much about his backstory? Well, he went to Plumtree School down in Bulawayo. His father's a doctor. Um, he is one of several children. His brother played um rugby for the country and he was an outstanding sportsman so he was a champion javelin thrower he played excellent rugby himself He's, uh, he was a um a sprinter and i mean i reckon sprinting would have been one of his options mm -hmm. um but he also i think his first love is music uh and he always wanted to be a musician i think he was just quite good at cricket and that's why he played yeah. cricket. I don't, th I don't think it was his love at all. Um, but he ended up playing it and playing it quite well and well enough to be the first black test cricketer for Zimbabwe. Mm. And just for context for those that might not be aware of this, in Australia at the moment, Henry Alonga is on television on The Voice in a reality uh, music contest. He's a viral megastar <laughs> he's, and he's a, at the moment. Yeah, and you've probably seen his, his what he's done recently in recent days. I have. So uh, a number of friends from around the world have sent me the link. And uh, I, in fact, I was at my parents' house this morning, um, close by to Guildford, and I was showing them and they were really touched listening to him. Um, my, my father uh, knew Henry quite well. So it was, it was lovely to see him doing that, actually. I I know that he would get so um, so much satisfaction and contentment from uh, the music world. So for him to have that opportunity, and who knows where it might lead, but it's lovely that he's got that opportunity. It's lovely that people are hearing him sing. Uh, when he lived in England and did uh, and did a little bit of the after dinner circuit, um, and not so much, definitely not the classic after dinner speaker. <laughs> Uh, but he did more of a circuit around schools and churches, I think. And um, and uh, part of his part of his talk and his presentation was singing, 
and I, you know, I'd listen to him every day if I could. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. Your third and fourth games of that 99 tournament didn't quite go to plan, although it must be said, despite only making totals of 197 for 9 and 167 for 8 against Sri Lanka and England respectively, you held them hard. So, I mean, there, was, there wasn't there was like you were getting blown away, especially with Neil Johnson bowling so effectively. Um, he took 1 for 20 off 7 against England, for instance. You were They were hard held and you were still fighting. You were still in it having, of course, won your first two fixtures. Yeah, I mean, we played Sri Lanka at Worcester and... Um and, and didn't bat particularly well, but I think they only won in about the 47th over. Yeah, that's right. And I remember dropping an absolute sitter behind off Guy Whittle as well, which might have um, changed that result. And then against England at Trent Bridge, again, we didn't get many, probably about 170, and they took quite a long time to get it, and it cost them badly. Big time. I mean, in a way, how, how long you... How long it took them to get over the line comes back to help Zimbabwe later in, in, the, in the piece. But what you needed to do first was overcome the side, which were number one in the world, unbeaten in the tournament and dominant. Your uh, fellow African uh, combatants South Africa at Northamptonshire in... At Chelmsford. Oh, sorry, at Chelmsford. At Chelmsford. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, of and course, at Chelmsford. never beaten them in a world international no. at that point. No. So the odds were heavily stacked against you. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, but going in, the fact that you're still kicking and still alive, do you have much of a sense of before that game started the spirit around the place? That side of ours was always plen- uh, had plenty of spirit and we couldn't afford to get too down from losing a series of matches in a row. Um, but uh, South Africa was always viewed as big brother. Um, you know, their their sporting resources dwarf ours in Zimbabwe, and um, and so any time we competed with them, we were it, it was always going to be tough for us. On this occasion, um, I you know I, we had very little to lose, um, and played like that. You know, we played. Uh, a fairly attacking game um, with the bat, even though um, uh, we, we didn't get a huge score. Um, and then when we bowled, we were outstanding. And, and usually when we won games around in that period, we'd field outstandingly well. And that was definitely the case in this game. So we started off with Neil Johnson bowling a really heavy ball to Gary Kirsten. He sort of fended it off uh, towards a fine gully and Andy Whittle took a brilliant one-handed catch for the f- and that's how we started that innings. Um, and from then on, it was a bit of a struggle for them. You know, They, they played fairly tight cricket, which played into our hands. Um, we, uh, we took wickets uh, throughout their innings. Um, I remember, e- even though Henry, I don't think, bowled that many overs in that game, he took a brilliant catch in front of the side screen, running across the side screen to get rid of Cullinan. I think it Pollock. was. Was it? Po- it was yeah, when Pollock, Pollock was, on was on fifty-two something. Yeah, yeah. And really threatening to win the game for them um, off Andy Whittle, the off spinner. On a, and it's it's really short on that end. Yeah. And it was only Henry's speed, I think, that got him into position uh, to take that catch. It bears repeating that. I mean, how, this, how the scores played out because to allow a bit of context here. You, You'd made 233 for six, so Johnson makes 76. Then he walks out and takes the new ball, and first ball stitches up Kirsten with an absolute brute, the one you mentioned before. And at one stage, South Africa, a 40 for six, 
And then Klusner shortly thereafter joins Pollock. Klusner, I should add, batting down at nine, joins Pollock and they tee off. And they, I mean, until that catch, until Pollock's removed, um, it's back in the balance. I mean, from from a almost unlosable position. Uh you needed that well, piece of magic for longer. It, it's amazing you say that because that's it, it's 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 interesting how our memories get distorted with time. I, I didn't remember them being in as much trouble as that. I thought right. it was more a, a slower progression through the innings. But Klusner batting that low showed the length of their order. Um, Elworthy was a more than capable batsman as well. I think coming uh, soon after him. But those, yeah, those those two could easily win matches against much better bowling sides than we had. Uh, but our fielding was outstanding, and you know that was an incredibly special win for us to get one over the big brothers in uh, of of, of uh, Southern Africa. Longer to die uh, was really important for us. Caught him! Brilliant catch yet again. End of the game. Alonga takes the wicket, Donald out, Klusner left undefeated on 52. Zimbabwe win by 48 runs. Historic victory, the first time in eight tries that they've beaten South Africa in a one-day game. Did that mean something more to Zimbabwe cricket than any other win because you'd finally beaten South Africa? I think a- apart mi- from the context of being, keeping alive in the tournament, was there well, something yeah, bigger? Getting bigger us play? into the Super Sixes... Um, and beating beating South Africa, who you know, when when we grew up in Southern Africa. Well, I mean, I started in South Africa. I was born in Cape Town, and we grew up with the, the Springboks being everything, uh, rugby or cricket. Um, and a, a lot of our a lot of the sports lovers in in Rhodesia and then Zimbabwe would always follow the Springboks. So when we started playing against effectively the Springboks or the Proteas or whatever you want to call them, um, you know they they were the they were the icons of Southern African sport for us. So to eventually beat them was really important for us. What an extraordinary weekend as well. When you consider what was going on in the in the tournament at large, last round of group games, you go down to Chelmsford needing to win to stay alive. South Africa obviously don't. Um, which changes everything for them later on as well with the points carried forward part of the Super 6. Um, over at Birmingham, England lose to India, so they're eliminated. Right. You're on level points with England and you go through on net run rate. So it all comes back to uh, that slow chase of theirs back at Trent Bridge. And not only do you go through in third spot, due to the quirk of the system with the Super 6 carrying forward to the next round points against those who you'd beaten. You finished third in the group, but suddenly you're second in the Super 6, only behind Pakistan from the other group on that run rate because you'd beaten India That's and you'd right. beaten South Africa. So it was the best possible um, way to sequence your, 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 well, your well, progression. You lost, you lost against Sri Lanka and England who didn't get didn't there. Make it. Oh, that's right. <laughs> you'd beaten the good teams. Yeah, we were beautifully set up if we just played some good cricket in the Super 6s. But we didn't. Well, that that, that is that is true to be that is true. I mean, the, the first Super Six game, well, we were uh, again, was was rained off, and really, I mean, even that the, the way that you'd bowled in that tournament, they were three for seventy chasing your one seventy five. So yes, the probability is they they may have 
they may have uh, chased that down. But all the same, he did take a point from that game being a no result. So that which, which is which, which which is you know something we're going to tell you in a moment, which you might probably did clock at the time, but um, we'll come to in a moment. So the, the second game at Lords gives us a chance to reflect on Neil Johnson again against Australia. They make three hundred and three, and Johnson takes wickets. So I note that Henry Alonga one for sixty two off seven, but knocked over Ricky Ponting. So as you do, <laughs> <laughs> all or nothing, Henry. That's all or Henry. nothing. All or nothing. And in reply, you were two fifty nine for six. So you were uh, about forty. Four runs short, but Johnson bats through the entire 50 overs, 132 not out from 144 bowls. And at that point, um, you know, he's putting together one of the all-time great World Cup campaigns with ball and bat. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Again, uh, a score of over 300, which seemed completely daunting for us. But Johnson got us off to a great start. I think they might have bowled Shane Warne really early in that as, a, as an effort to get Johnson, uh, because he'd hit their seamers so hard and he and throughout the tournament had played the seamers so well. But there was this perception that he might not be so good against spin. But he dealt really easily with Shane Wong. Another four. So that's five fours for Neil Johnson. Off Shane Warne. Um, and uh, and gave us a chance of um, a chance of chasing down that total. I don't he obviously didn't have uh, much support um, from anyone else. I remember I went in in the middle order and I, I only faced one or two balls, I think, and nicked one um, off Paul Rifle that went across me. And, um, and yeah, unfortunately, we, we couldn't get one over a very good Australian side, obviously. They went on to win it. This time he's gone thump to backward point. That's four more. That was a foolish delivery. And what an innings. He's been out there all day in warm conditions, fielded well, bowled well, picked up two wickets. Now he's fighting to the end. So he gets the last ma- last match, and you have to win to stay alive, and you play pa- Pakistan. Yeah. Nine for 271, Pakistan, mate. Johnson didn't bowl. Mm. Was he injured, or do you have any recollection why he well, didn't bowl? Or was he not wanting to bowl? I, I'm afraid my memory is failing me on this one. <laughs> um, I would imagine he was injured. Mm. Uh, I can't mm. see why he wouldn't have bowled uh, in, that, in that game. Yeah, he must have... It must have had something wrong with him. He still uh, finished the campaign with the bat, though, naturally enough. All that for 123, Johnson 54. So, you yeah. know, he, he was well enough to, to continue to, to contribute with the bat. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, we, we batted poorly in that innings. Uh, Saeed Anwar, I think, scored runs. In the, in, he know, did. He made that, 100. Yeah, it was beautiful to watch from behind the stumps, actually. And sure yeah. enough, he was bowled by Henry Alonga on 103. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it, we sort of limped out of the tournament, out of the Super Sixes. But nearly uh, not. This is the point I wanted to ask you about. So after your final Super Six game, there's another Super Six game between Australia and South Africa. And I'm not sure whether this was something you'd computed at the time, but if Herschel Gibbs takes that catch and Australia lose that Super 6 game to South Africa, you're in the World Cup semi-final. We did clock it at the time. Mm. Um, but I tell you what, the, 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 uh, the, there were some really con- strongly conflicting feelings around that topic. Was um, That would be obviously amazing. Um, but then the second feeling was, well, do we really deserve it after playing the Super Six round like that? Mm. Um, so we were we were watching it very carefully, believe you me. Uh, but um, I, I don't think we would have felt that good about it actually going right. into those semis. And you would have been playing Pakistan, who you've just been thumped by the a few days prior, I suppose. Yeah. 
Well, uh, they were playing some really good cricket at that time. That um, some of those out- outstanding icon players um, still playing for them, and a couple of cracking batsmen up front. So Johnson finishes with the six most runs in the competition, 367 at 52, only behind Dravid, Steve Waugh, Ganguly, Mark Waugh, Said Amwar, and he's 12th on the wicket-takers list with 12 at 19. So, I mean, averaging 52 with the bat, 19 with the ball. If, if Lance Klusner didn't do what Lance Klusner did... This Neil Johnson's got claims to be player of the, player player of the, of the tournament. tournament. Well, yeah, we all knew he'd played well, but when you when you actually remind us of those stats from the tournament, that is outstanding. Um, was it who who did get man of the tournament? Glance, Glance. Oh, it was Kluzner, yeah. was it? Yeah, and and rightly so, given I mean he's just sustained run of form. But yeah, it, it's interesting that, that did yeah, interesting well. that there's there's this other all rounder from the tournament that we don't have as much of a conversation about who really did. Fade out of view. That that was his final game for Zimbabwe. Yeah. Well, he went on. He I think he got a contract with Hampshire straight after uh, that, um, and and I think once he had those contracts, he felt that you know, he didn't need Zimbabwe anymore. Uh, I'm not sure exactly. You know what he'd tell you um, from his perspective. But he he he. You know we wanted him to continue playing for us. Obviously. Uh, but he, he has his, 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 in his mind, his time was up. At that point, Zimbabwe are, are building. Going out of the tournament, are you thinking, we are, we are really going somewhere? We are leading to a place. You had that core that was still, you know, 30, so still had a good four or five years of, of cricket ahead of them. Um, going out of the tournament, you were positive about the future? Yeah, ab- absolutely we were. Yeah. We'd, we'd played good cricket got into the super sixes that's a serious achievement for a small uh, small cricketing nation and and i think we felt very confident about the future losing johnson uh, it was a hit but we still had goodwin we still had guys like heath streak who were, who were right on top of their games he must have had an outstanding bowling record in that yeah. tournament and heath streak's a really interesting one because i think from that period of time i mean he was absolutely world class wasn't he i mean yeah. he was one of the best bowlers in the world at both forms without a doubt he was mm. um he bowled these brisk outswingers with excellent control um and then he 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 sort of his variation he sort of rolled into the right hander um which was quite hard to pick up it wasn't an inswinger it was delivered in the, with the same action as an outswinger, but it sort of carried on going towards off stump. Um, and uh, he, he was he was a genuinely world class performer. Unfortunately for him, because he was so good, and uh, some of our other bowling was not of that sort of standard, he got over bowled with us, and uh, and consequently picked up injuries. Really strong guy. Um, I don't know if you remember the how you know looking at yeah. him the way yeah. he was he was built, built like he was built really strongly wasn't he uh, but, but even um, but picked up bad knee injuries so 11 wickets for Heath Streak in the tournament one player we haven't actually asked you about and you've mentioned is Murray Goodwin who's got a, a big personality uh, and uh, and some pretty good tales that Steve Waugh told in his book about Murray Goodwin which I won't repeat for the purpose of a, a PG rated podcast but um, inside the dressing room Murray Goodwin uh, what's your what's your memory 20 years on yeah, I mean, he he was firstly a very good cricketer. Um, he, he he certainly came in and brought his Western Australia experiences to bear for us in the on the international stage. Excellent cricketer, good puller and hooker, obviously like a, a proper Perth batter should be. But he also brought a, a, a quite a quirky sense of humour. 
quite a no- uh, he is quite a naughty bloke. Um, <laughs> like so we've heard. Yes, yes. Like, like I suppose a, a, a typical short, chirpy little uh, Australian batsman might be. Uh, and he brought that sense of humour uh, into our dressing room and into the the sort of after hours activities of um, young Zimbabwean <laughs> cricketers. Um, of, and and made some really good friendships uh, while he played for Zimbabwe, uh, my brother being one of them, and uh, and he he shared some really special moments with us. The golden generation of Zimbabwe cricket, which we talk about in '99, but it does continue. It, it isn't the end there. I mean, your own batting goes to a, an entire different level at the turn of the century. I mean, enormous series against India and New Zealand with the Red Bull. You go to number one in the world rankings personally. An astonishing test match at Harare against Africa where you make twin hundreds, including 199 not out in the second dig. The That period of your personal career as Zimbabwe kept going on that trajectory, did you think that big things were ahead or, or had things deteriorated politically by that point that you were always on the edge of it going the other way? Yeah, it, it was a really tricky time and it's such a pity that, firstly, that I had to leave, that Henry had to leave, uh, and that the, the Zimbabwean cricket slid away a bit like the country did. So there are direct parallels with the economic and political uh, problems that we were having and direction that we were taking as a country with the direction that cricket was taking. The, um, Z- the ZANU-PF politicians uh, had infiltrated cricket. There was now good money to be made in cricket in Zimbabwe. And uh, I'm afraid the wrong sort of people got into leadership positions um, in, in, in the game in Zimbabwe. And so we had political and racial issues. Um, we, we had a situation very much like South Africa did, whereby to address some of the wrongs of the past, selection quotas were brought in. Um, and that, that provoked um, a response from the white cricketers, I suppose you, you could call it as simply as that. And, uh, and not necessarily a healthy response at all, by the way, uh, but a response nonetheless, which meant that there was, there was racial conflict as well as problems over uh, finances in the game. Um, and then a, a third serious issue that had developed was um, the, the fact that the Zimbabwe Cricket Union at the time was... Uh, generating quite a, a, a substantial income from its participation in World Cups, but wasn't transferring much of that income at all to the players. Um, to the extent that I think the the only time that the or the first time that the players that played for Zimbabwe started getting paid at all properly was after we had threatened strike action in the year two thousand when we toured England. And we used the Lord's Test uh, as um, as an opportunity to threaten strike action, uh, and through do, through doing that, we were uh, we were um, our case was taken to arbitration, uh, and we won our case in arbitration, and uh, and it was only in the year two thousand, after that case was heard and won, that uh, the players started getting paid at all reasonably. 
So um, there were th th those were some really serious issues that that created quite a lot of tension, a little bit of tension between players of different colour, uh, but also significant tension between players and administrators, um, which made it started making it a little unpleasant. Um, whereas up until then, I think our primary driver uh, in international cricket for Zimbabwe was doing the country proud, was justifying our international status, was fighting as, a, as an underdog uh, for the pride of our nation. It started turning the, thereafter um, into a battle between the players and the administrators over selection issues over, and over financial issues and a complete um, breakdown of trust between uh, players and, and uh, decision makers. So. Um, by the time I left in 2003, along with all the farm invasions and the economic uh, problems, economic and political problems and human rights problems that we had in the country, uh, there were some significant problems within our small cricket community as well. And while this is about 99, I think 2003, and you mentioned 2003 World Cup, you and Henry make the brave stand to protest about this um can you just take us through the the thinking and the discussion beforehand to make that decision and knowing that this was going to be it for your international career for zimbabwe well i mean that was from a personal perspective for henry and i that was uh, an important part of it we had to understand that if we wanted to make a statement against the ruling party as we were going to do even though it was a human rights statement as opposed to a political statement. We knew that our participation in international cricket for Zimbabwe thereafter was, uh, would have to end. Basically for safety reasons, uh, and, and, you know, we couldn't stay in the country for safety reasons after standing up against a person like Mugabe. He had a history of dealing with people like that in a violent manner. So that was one of the factors we had to take into account. But more important than that, was, and, and I hadn't thought of this myself, it was pointed out to me by a friend that we shouldn't be uh, playing an international tournament, so co-hosting the 2003 World Cup, in an atmosphere of complete abnormality in our country where human rights abuses were happening uh, constantly um, and they were not ignored but taken as just part of our of our time um, and after having my eyes opened uh, to the uh, to the reality of what was happening in the country and uh, and and being dragged out of that cosseted professional sports world uh, that sometimes we can live in um, I felt compelled to take advantage of the media spotlight being on the country at that time, uh, recruited Henry, uh, or when I say recruited, I spoke to him about the opportunity that that was presented to us, explained what we, we possibly could do, um, explored the, the sort of the uh, moral and ethical part of that decision. And once I'd planted that seed, he was all in. Uh, and then we just had to talk about how. How do we express ourselves? How do we express our distaste? How do we express our um, the fact that we didn't want to stand by 
and allow human rights abuses to to happen in our country without us saying anything um, and pretending that everything was okay. The statement that you released at the time concluded by saying, we are mourning the death of democracy in our beloved Zimbabwe. In doing so, we are making a silent plea to those responsible to stop the abuse of human rights in Zimbabwe. In doing so, we pray that our small action may restore sanity and dignity to our nation. They're strong words which you and Henry are linked to and linked with forever. Um, so I'm interested in asking, really, 16 years on, uh, are you still mates? Do you still see much of each other? Do you talk? I mean, I know you live in different countries, but, it, I mean, that's such a, such a an enormous thing to go through with another person, uh, and I imagine that that has a bond between you forever as well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think that is a bond that we will share uh, for uh, until we pass. Um, I speak to Henry every now and then, I phoned him a few months ago to see how he was uh, getting on. He mentioned that he was uh, going to take part in The Voice, <laughs> um, but told me, but swore me to secrecy. <laughs> no spoiler alerts here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure he could trust you of all, of all the people. I'm yes. sure he could trust you or something like that. So uh, I, I, we don't see as much of each other as we would like. I mean, he lives in Australia now, but even when he lived in England, you know, he, he lived a, a, across in the West Country. I lived uh, in Essex initially. So we didn't see much of each other. Um, and because he'd gone out of sport, we didn't really, our paths didn't cross that easily. But we used to catch up every now and then, talk about the kids. Um, uh, I'd ask him, I'd always ask him about his music, uh, his burgeoning music career. Um, and, he'd, and he'd talk about uh, my coaching. Uh, and it's always lovely to catch up with him. Is there any regrets? 16 years on, any regrets on wearing the black armbands? I've got no regret at all. Um, on wearing it. I think if we'd been a little more worldly, we could have, uh, could have possibly, we could have used the media a little more wisely so that we could have made a bigger statement. Mm. But we were naive and, and merely trying to protest yep. um, uh, against those human rights abuses. Uh, but we, you know, with my knowledge now, and perhaps with my contacts now, we could have done yeah. we mm. could have done it better and more effectively. You know, we knew that we we weren't going to uh, change a regime or or anything as drastic as that. But we wanted to say no, uh, that's not okay, um, and and wanted to, in a in a small way, try to jerk people out of their apathy in the country and around the world. Uh, you know, you see these situations de develop all around the world, and and they hit the headlines for a short time, and then people get bored with it and they disappear. But but um, uh, the, some of these atrocities are perpetuated still in these police state type countries. These days, your relationship with Zimbabwe. I mean, is there a relationship with your your country these days, or or, or is it? Obviously, you're a citizen in the UK and have such a, a strong link to England through your work. But um, when it comes to you in Zimbabwe, what's the status at the moment? Well, I, I went back to Zimbabwe a couple of years ago with uh, my children. My three children were all born in Zimbabwe, but didn't really get to know the country because we, we left when they were so small. Um, so I took them back. We met a lot of my friends. We did a lot of the touristy stuff that... Uh, Zimbabwe is famous for and it, it was just brilliant to be able to tour around the country with my kids and, and show them around and they absolutely adored it uh, that was the only time I've been back in uh, 16 years but 
I, I've got friends there. I've got a little bit of family left there. Um, so we keep in touch. Uh, you know, they, they're having a really hard time uh, economically um, and politically. Uh, and unfortunately, until you have leaders at the top that are making decisions on what's best for the people of the country rather than what's best for that small elite right at the top, that the country is going to carry on struggling. Um, it isn't inevitable that it has to carry on that way. There are uh, African stories that are successful, um, but we need the right people at the top for us to have any chance whatsoever. So back back to '99, and we and there's that sad postscript in a lot of ways to the '99 World Cup. But is there pride that that is probably Zimbabwe's best performance? in a World Cup, would you say that? I, I think it would, you know, uh, beating India and South Africa on the way to um, qualifying for the Super Sixes, I'd say so. I mean, we we qualified in 2003 as well, um, but I think, we, you know, we were rain-assisted on uh, in one game and assisted by England um, having to pull out for um, uh, political and security reasons. Um so yes, I would say that, and it, 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 you know they hold very fond me fond memories. Um, uh, those World Cup games, as 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 do '92 when I first started. Uh, but as a as an ex-Zimbabwean cricketer, any win became really special, and that that uh, uh, that, that might sound a little trite or silly, but we didn't win that often. So when we won, we, we, it, it brought a huge amount of satisfaction for all the hard work that not only we as individual players put in or our coaches put in, but for those, um, uh, some of those administrators that fought so hard to get us international status in the first place, that, that, that as volunteers ran the game for many years, you know, as I was as a teenager coming through the, through the game, um, making sure that we had good domestic cricket uh, from which to, to give us a, a wider base of reasonable players uh, who transitioned through into a semi-professional world where we could employ proper coaches, where we could start playing, paying the players, even though it was a pittance, you could start paying them something. I think um, any win that Zimbabwe, that Zimbabwe gets, any win that I recall... It reflects all of that work done by all of those people. And it may, from a very small, small nation, that's the way it feels to me. Andy Flower, thank you so much for taking us through the journey of Zimbabwe's World Cup campaign in 1999 and also for giving us a much better understanding of the country where you played your cricket. Thanks for being part of the greatest season that was World Cup 99. That's a pleasure, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. The greatest season that was presents World Cup 99 with Adam Collins, Shannon Gill and Dan Bredig. Gilly, we were thrilled to have such a significant chunk of time with Andy Flower. He's a very busy man. It was great to collar him, and even better how open he was over really a, a sort of a 20-year period from the start of his career all the way through to the political troubles and, and so on, which have plagued Zimbabwe ever since. You, you're right, because while we talked 99, we also talked about the before and the after that is so interesting too. 
and he was. He gave us a lot of time. I, th- he, I think we got more time than we thought we would get with him, and he was very open. And I, I know I haven't heard him speak in depth in recent times about this sort of stuff, so very lucky that we got that uh, to tape. It was uh, it was a wonderful experience, uh, Dan. To go back to kind of where the conversation began as well, the '92 World Cup. It did signal the start of a bit of an era. They started building with this group of players who featured in '92, then '96, and uh, they added a couple to the squad before '99. But it was a, as a group they were going through as a generation. Yeah, absolutely, they were, and and they had, I, I suppose you'd say, um, gradually increasing opportunities. It's not not a million miles away from from what happened for Bangladesh around the around the same time, and. And you have uh, another one that we probably should throw in there, the um, the 1994-95 World yes. Series with Australia A uh, as well. Um, and that that tour to Australia and also 92, both times they went to Australia and beat England in a, in a, in a one-day international, which was important. And then, of course, the, uh, the series hosting England in 96-97 summer at home in Zimbabwe with the uh, We Bloody Murdered Them by uh, David Lloyd and the... Um, uh, and then subsequently winning the one-day series quite comfortably. So, yeah, it was a group of players who were playing enough together to get to know each other, but also to improve as a as a collective. And I suppose, in terms of the size of Zimbabwe cricket at the time, it was um, it was probably a little bit like a um, you know a very solid, I suppose you'd say, like a, a county squad or a state squad that has was able to stay together with the. Um, you know, specific goal of improvement and uh, ultimately um, contending. And then, Shannon, that you're able to add two very accomplished players in Neil Johnson and Murray Goodwin. We spoke a lot about Neil in the conversation, but I mean, it, it's quite striking, isn't it, that he didn't play again for Zimbabwe after, we said to Andy at the time, a, a, a performance which, if not for Lance Klusner, would have almost certainly mm. seen him named as player of the tournament. Yeah, it, it, looking back in the stats, it's quite amazing what he did. But it does give an insight to uh, players from South Africa and Zimbabwe at that time and the opportunity, I suppose the financial opportunities that weren't there in those countries and the what Andy says was the goal for him to get a county contract. And he, and he did that off the back of his 99 performance but meant that mm. Zimbabwe cricket was secondary and we're seeing what's happening with South African cricket at the moment too is this playing out again. So... Uh, <laughs> It was good for Neil in that what he what he wanted he got, but uh, there is a, a a part of this that says what could have been if if Neil Johnson went on and played more international cricket because what he showed on the biggest stage in the world was as good as anyone. Yeah, it, it's Dan. You think about it now; it's hard to believe that a player who had that capacity to open the bowling and the batting and do so well on a global stage at, at the World Cup, no less, um, faded from sight so quickly. But it's also easy to forget what a talent he was. Doing the research for this episode, we went, and ba- went back and watched a bunch of the Zimbabwe clips from 99, and he was a serious cricketer. The sort of player that he was is, in a lot of ways, a sort of a... a, a and I don't think necessarily gets credit for his... Uh, ability as a as a batsman, a kind of a left left-handed Jack Cullis in a, in a, in a way, um, not someone who was necessarily always a dasher, um, but was a very complete batsman at his best, who could also bowl um, quite threatening, uh, medium fast outswing, and certainly with the with the the ball at the '99 World Cup, that was always going to be a huge weapon. So uh, he's someone who. Uh, you know, not only did he have a, a significant tournament overall, but you know the, the the couple of 
individual performances where you know the the game obviously against South Africa that gets them through to the to the next phase um, where he's uh, you know really showing his wares to uh, to guys that he was uh, provincial teammates with um, and then in um, the big stage at Lords mm. um, to put on the the performance that that he did where uh, Zimbabwe could have been expected to to fall away and certainly perhaps to fall away after Andy himself had been dismissed yeah, absolutely, and someone who Andy said was a reluctant bowler, which I thought was quite interesting. And indeed, he wasn't bowling by the end of the tournament because he'd picked up an injury, but it wasn't through lack of effort. He was prominent the whole way through. Uh, speaking of um, big uh, personalities in the 99 World Cup, uh, the India game, Henry Alonga, Gilly, uh, we were going through it uh, again before we spoke to Andy, and I remembered it very clearly sitting up and watching it at the time, but going through ball by ball at the end with him there, uh, and that's where the Henry Alonga story it doesn't start there, of course. He was playing international cricket for about four years before that, but he didn't play in the World Cup opener against Kenya, thrown into the side against India, of course, the day where Sachin Tendulkar wasn't playing, but that doesn't detract at all from the victory because they did it hard at the end, and uh, and that risky play of bowling Alonga, it worked perfectly. The way that Andy talked about Henry um, as a player. You could see that there's a great affection for him, both as yeah. a person, but also for his cricketing talent in what he, he gave and the, the pace he bowled at and and what he did on those days and creating that win out of nothing in a lot of ways was um, something that obviously Andy still holds dear to this day. But a huge, a huge finish to that game. And the regularity in which Alonga popped up across the tournament. I mean, the, the amazing catch to re- remove Sean Pollock in front of the sight screen yeah. against South Africa, which was crucial in the context of that finish. Um, I mean, the fact that he knocked over Ponting for a duck at Lords, um, picked up Sayed Anwar in that Super 6 game as well. So it was, a, it, he, he was, it was hard to keep out of the spotlight and it remains the case to this day. He, he, I feel like even though he didn't play loads for Zimbabwe, he leaves a fairly significant legacy, Dan. I, I suppose. I suppose the, the arc of the story from making his debut being no-balled for throwing and it's also Zimbabwe's first ever Test match win That's right. um, against Pakistan, all, all that in the one game, and then into, um, you know, periods of being in and out of the, of the, um, of the side, uh, I think by the time that they get to 1999, obviously he's done work on his action, but there's also some clarity there about what he does what he does well and how he fits into the attack. And like, as, as Gilly quite rightly pointed out, when you've got someone like Neil Johnson functioning well, then a, a highly aggressive, quick, could go for runs but could win you the game, as he literally did against India, Henry Alonga, becomes a much there better go, um, option. And, and, I, and I think that was something that, um, you know, was very true of the way that um, the uh, the 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 tournament panned out for for Zimbabwe and um it just a, another um moment that uh, Henry Alonga is involved in in that World Cup. He's also the first wicket in Seclane Mushtaq's hat-trick at the Oval. <laughs> we missed that. That's quite a good one. Uh, Gilly, we'll come back to Henry Alonga in a moment when we, we shift gears in the conversation, but um, the back end of that group stage, the first ever one-day international win, win against Africa, in the end a fairly comprehensive one after having them 40 for six at one stage. Instructive, though, that Andy didn't remember it that way. He didn't seem to think it was an easy win. I, mean, I know they rallied with Klusner and Pollock, but they were home and hosed after about 15 overs. Yeah, but, but that probably tells you just how difficult that task was for the team, mm. that they never felt safe. Um, the way he talks about South Africa is that growing up in a lot of ways, 
they looked up to South Africa. They didn't necessarily have this bitter rivalry with them. They actually looked up to them as as big brother, but in a in a mm. almost a, a, a fond way because they they knew the players well because they would play against them in in different different or with them in in different um, competitions that they were playing with growing up. Um, but but clearly a, a huge moment in the history of Zimbabwe cricket, and in a lot of ways it's it's a symbol of how good this World Cup was for Zimbabwe. And subsequently, we've spoken to a lot of people since um, after they'd heard we talked to Andy Flower, and I think the comment was, "Oh, Zimbabwe at their best. That's that's the best Zimbabwe team I've seen." Yeah, that's right. And I mean, on the back of that, it's the catalyst for that crazy weekend, Dan, where we've talked about it a couple of times. But England lose to India in what becomes a sudden death game. There's the Australia go slow the day after. Suddenly, Zimbabwe. Not only do they sneak into the Super Six with two wins. I mean, of course, they lost to England and Sri Lanka, the two teams that didn't progress, but they did beat India and South Africa. So they're third in their group, but second on the Super Six table. It, it, it did show one of the quirks of the system. It absolutely did. And, and, and I think as well that the game against South Africa happening um, at the same time as the England-India fixture um, at Birmingham, mm. I, I have memories of, uh, you know, you, you didn't have multi-channel options or split screen or anything like that at that point. But as, as I recall, the game that was on Channel 9 in Australia was the was the England-India game, as you'd expect. But just occasionally some highlights were being shown in that telecast of what was going on at Chelmsford. <laughs> and um, it was, uh, you know, wicket, wicket, wicket. Um, at the start of the South African chase for um, uh, for two thirty three, and at the same time you'd, they'd they'd be cutting back to the live action at, at Edgerton, and England would be starting to lose wickets, and it all you know you, you you got that it was a little bit of a sort of you know last day of the Premier League season kind of feel with the with the uh, action in multiple locations. It's a bit of a reminder that those other county grounds you know off Broadway, I suppose, were used. Chelmsford with this game was such a big part of the tournament. Northampton where. Uh, Bangladesh knocked off Pakistan. It had a different feel to the one that we're currently watching in 2019 where it's mostly at those big grounds. Uh, also, in relation to the Super 6, Gilly, um, they, they pick up a point in a rain-affected game against New Zealand, which does mean that they're, they're in the tournament until the very last day when Australia plays South Africa. I'd never really thought about that before. Yeah, right right in it, which, you know, it sounds funny, but that was... The, the, the fact that they won those two matches that and they were two big scalps meant that they took those points through which is again one of the quirks or, or should we say the the good things about the super six system that while it was a little bit hard to follow it does make sense that Zim, you know zimbabwe had knocked off south africa and india and they were both the business end so why shouldn't they get yep. something for those games but it did mean that had they had herschel gibbs taken that catch they would have made it through to the semi-finals having won Two games in the tournament so far, which is, I mean, it's 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 freakish, but it would have been, well, it's actually instructive probably as well, Dan, that, that Andy himself said that, that would have left a, a strange feeling within them had they made it through to the final four, having only won those couple of games. So we remember it as a as a an incredibly successful tournament for Zimbabwean cricket due to the fact that they did beat India and they did beat South Africa and they, they were the individual storylines. But, I mean, there were two wins after all. It's one of those uh, ones where, um, you know, you, uh, and I, again, draw the parallel uh, a bit with, with Bangladesh, that uh, people look at the 99 World Cup as being a fortunate tournament for them in some ways, you know, in terms of the timing of of um uh well in terms of Zimbabwe the timing of the coming together of that team and the and the tournament format and all that kind of stuff and in terms of Bangladesh the fact that 
they won a they won a significant game for them at a time when they were angling very much for test status. Uh, but mm. I think it, it's probably better to look at it the other way, which is that um, these are countries on the fringe of the you know accepted group of powerful nations in international cricket, and the fact that they got a couple of breaks in a major tournament. Um, only enriches the story, given that they had so many obstacles to overcome at other times. Gilly, it, it's a great story about Zimbabwe in 99, but it takes a relatively quick and sudden turn the other way at the turn of the century, and, and Andy was really forthcoming about that. And he stressed that it wasn't just about politics, it was about economics, it was about fairness, it was about human rights, and, and it bled through to the the cricket side of things as he explained it was no longer about playing for the pride of Zimbabwe and the pride of their nation it became a a contest between players and administrators and that's when the wheels slowly started falling off I mean look it's not a it's 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 a a moment that I think a lot of people remember in 2003 when the the black armband protest happens but just hearing it from him himself and you know this is a guy who was still playing very good cricket at the time but he effectively gave up his cricket career to, to do what he did. And it's very brave. And what and what he and Henry Alonga did was very brave. And the the bond is still there between them. But it does it's it's a sad end to what looked to be such a promising era in Zimbabwe cricket, with ninety nine probably as the high point. You'd you'd hope that two thousand and three, when they are now part of hosting a World Cup, that it's going to go on to bigger and better things. But sadly there were other forces at play. Yeah, they also made the Super 6 at 2003, but for different reasons, and I don't think people, for a heartbeat, compare the two tournaments in terms of the significance. I mean, Flower himself in the interview made the point that they knew that making a statement against the ruling party um, was and about human rights was going to end their participation in international cricket, Dan. And mm. even though Andy Flower was coming towards the end of his journey, and look, maybe Henry Alonga was as well when you consider how inconsistently he was in the side, it, it's, you know... It, Shannon, you said it was brave, but I mean, it's also just a, a significant life decision that they made that day. And, and I found it interesting that he has no regrets. His only regret is that they didn't go harder and get a, a, a more substantial and prominent run in the media for the action they took that day. Yeah, th- there's a sense that they kind of feel the, the uh, you know, not only is international outrage growing externally, but they're sort of feeling the walls close in around them in terms of the cricket program and 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 the and the fact that there's um a uh what was a an example of a small cricket nation in terms of the number of players playing it being able to be successful um and being able to to grow as a as a team and 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 grow by extension the number of players available who are going to be up to up to scratch um you know a little bit like if you go um, a few years down the track without things being interrupted, probably a little bit more like what you see in in New Zealand these days. Um, but that, that that's coming apart at the seams um, in concert with what's going on politically. And then you've also got, obviously, um, the debates that are going on daily about other teams, whether or not they actually turn up. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it's... Uh, I think it was interesting to hear Andy say that they could have gone harder at it. Um, but I think that probably needs to be seen as well in the context that... Um, uh, that was that was in 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 aid of of I suppose winning further recognition for a for a cause or for an issue that um, between you know it's extraordinary how much it deteriorated between ninety nine and 03. And that whole concept of uh, of 
you know, doing it in a particular match, but knowing that we wouldn't have to go back to Zimbabwe for another match after it. I mean, just to put yourself in those shoes, the, the thinking about all that stuff and still going out and trying to win international cricket matches is is quite a, a bizarre um, thing you've got to consider and, and certainly would make other players of other nations that don't have to worry about those things uh, think luckier themselves. Yeah, and not to mention the, the physical risk that they were subjecting themselves to, them and their loved ones and so on, and thankfully nothing directly came from that. But, um, you know, they, they did leave where they lived. They, they both moved to the United Kingdom where they continued their careers, and not in Henry Alonga's case, but certainly uh, Andy Flower went on to play first-class cricket in England for quite a few years, Australia as well, for South Australia. Um, and Shannon, I, I thought it was... A nice postscript to the interview, really, when we when we talked to Andy about Henry Olonga's current pursuit, which is singing, and he's on The Voice in Australia. Mm. The fact that he was taken into Henry's confidence about going on the show, he couldn't tell anyone, as I made the point at the time. I'm sure that they are two people that can trust each other. Uh, and, uh, and the fact that they don't see tons of each other, but they have a special bond which will always remain, given what they did in 2003. Yeah, and, and how good is that, you know... And Andy, first of all, saying that, look, we don't see as much of each other as we'd like to because we're on different sides of the world and doing different things. But he still did tell him that he was going to be on The Voice and, and to keep it quiet. So <laughs> such a good, uh, I suppose, a, a little bit of a feel-good um, part to what is not necessarily the, the greatest uh, feel-good story, the whole Zimbabwe cricket story. But um, uh, Henry's still in The Voice, I think, when we when we when this goes live. So... Uh, Give give Henry a, a bit of a, a hit up on on Twitter and let him know that this is uh, this is going about and that and he's got his uh, got his support for him. Yeah, let's hope he wins the thing. And another, I guess, positive uh, uh, end to the interview, Dan, was that Andy has gone back to Zimbabwe last year with his daughter um, to show her around the country where she was born. And there is this sort of suggestion. When I was over there last year, certainly it was the case that they might not be far away. I mean, it's hard to put any evidence to that based on their performances on the field, but administratively, they may not be as far away from uh, being back on their back on their feet as we sometimes think. It's certainly a, a signal story of a country or a cricketing country that was getting stronger um, than kind of, you know, being um, pulled apart uh, from within really um, in the in the years after the '99 World Cup, um, and that comes with the um, that comes with the the, the lesson that um, for things to be built back up again and and to and to um, get to a point where they could aspire to um, you know do something like that which was achieved in '99 um, takes uh, strength coming from within, growing to without. Again, that is the administration and the and the and the running of the of the game and the and the um, and the putting in place the the building blocks so that you have enough players from from which to to choose and 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 build up again. Um, yeah, it's a it's a slow and and multi generational process. But yeah, to hear that um, that Andy has. Um, I guess to to an extent made um, uh, made some some um, uh, some uh, peace I guess with the with the way that um, uh, the way that the country um, is now and the, and where things may be able to go is a is a great positive and I think something that um, uh, you know it it um, it struck me that the reason that he wanted to talk so much about the topic and that he wanted to give so much of his time is that, um, you know, this is still something that 
um, Wally's been so heavily involved with English cricket over over the last um, you know fifteen years or so. Um, this is still something that is not just close to his heart. It, it is it is his heart. It's 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 where he comes from. Yeah, well said. Uh, stick around to the end of the ep. If you're still with us, uh, we've got a bit of a treat for you at the end. I can't let the episode go by without mentioning that um, Andy Flower, one of the uh, uh, one of only two South Australian cricketers playing for South Australia, to uh, hit the ING sign. Graham <laughs> Manu being the other one. <laughs> that is that is such damn breeding areas. That's probably a very nice place to leave it. Uh, but before doing so, as we sign off, I should say on the greatest season there was ninety nine. Thanks again to Andy Flower. Thanks to Bad Producer Productions. Thanks for those who've been involved on the Patreon account. Thanks to Shannon and Dan. And thanks also to Henry Alonga for uh, what we're going to play song. Uh, Andy Flower talks about it in the interview. It's called Our Zimbabwe. To play us out, Henry Alonga. This land, our land, is our Zimbabwe. A land of peace for you and me. Once born in pain and segregation but now we live in harmony now flies the flag our nation's glory we live with pride inside our hearts as we all stand to build our nation this our land, our Zimbabwe. Where they be